This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. What is the manner of his existence? If we can answer that question in some fundamental way, I would argue that in that lies the key to understanding whether the Bible is speaking literally or metaphorically. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am your host, Jonathan Master, and I am joined as always with my colleague, friend, partner in crime, James Dolezal. James, how are you? Not crime, but otherwise great. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Par- <laughs> partner in podcasting. Uh, and uh, so anyway, I, we want to do something a little bit different today. We have received listener feedback. We love getting listener feedback and we can't, we usually can't respond to all of it in a podcast because we have other things that we're trying to get to and that require our attention. However, in this particular episode, what we wanted to do is tackle two questions that we've gotten and we've gotten them from multiple people and they haven't all been phrased in exactly the same way. But one I would say is directed at you, James, and then one was probably a little more directed at me. So I want to start with the one that is directed at you, if that's okay. Sure. Let's go. All right. So this has to do with, I I don't know the specific conversation because I've gotten this feedback from people in response to a number of of episodes that we've done, but it doesn't matter which specific episode this is a response to. But the question is this, when we talk about the nature of God, we've done that many, many times on this show, but the question I've gotten from people is this, when do we know in the scriptures when God is being spoken of metaphorically and when is he being spoken of, I'll say literally. Now, those I know aren't the best two terms to use, and so you can talk a little bit about that, but but you understand the point of the question. Everybody who reads the scriptures sort of intuitively says God doesn't have eyes and ears and a right arm, but then once you get beyond that, it becomes a little more controversial. So, when do we know that this is something we should actually take literally? And when is it something that we should see as metaphorical? That's a good question. And it's one that often comes up, especially in the last 10 years or so, as reformed evangelicals are rediscovering scholasticism. We're finding out that our forebearers denied the literalness of many things more than simply body parts or functions. Right. Uh, also passions, we deny, and also anything that connotes a part, we deny. Um, And so on what basis? Usually evangelicals denying body parts of God will go to those half dozen texts or so, maybe there are more than that, but explicit references to God as spirit, and then say, on the basis of that, we know that he is without a body, which is not a bad... um, Which you can also do with passions. You can say God does not change or... or Yes, right. And, And so then you can infer from that that passions, which are undergoings would require change. But really, if I could kind of get down below all of that, do we need do we need one set of texts that um, say God doesn't have a body and then therefore we decide to give it preference over the many, many, many texts that say he does? Um, or texts that might suggest he has no passions like Acts 14, 15, really one text. Uh, and how is it that we give that sort of controlling status over the countless, you know, waxings and wanings of God's affections, uh, which are recorded throughout Scripture. And for some, it seems like a sort of arbitrary, um, I've decided simply to prejudice, you know, set of text A, God does not have passions like a man, or God is a spirit, over set of text B, 
God's anger waxed hot or God's right arm, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, and you can hear, you can read some commentators who will say, you know, how can you take this one text that said God says God does not change? And how come that's the literal text? Yeah, exactly. Uh, against the, the hundreds that say he repents. How come they aren't the literal text and they cannot change isn't the metaphorical right, text? Right, right, right. That's the question. Yes. And I think, I think to really get down underneath that and not just let it be one verse versus a set of other verses. Right. Uh, I think we need to come down to something more fundamental in terms of the identity and the being of God himself. How is God in terms of his existence? And you know how I am with this. I'm, I, I like to push on being language and existence language. What is the manner of his existence? If we can answer that question in some fundamental way, I would argue that in that lies the key to understanding whether the Bible is speaking literally or metaphorically. So what I would argue in terms of a rule by which to judge all of those texts, whether you're talking about passions or body parts or anything, uh, is the rule of God's absolute creatorhood. In Scripture, the most fundamental distinction between all between God and all that is not God is God's absolute sourcehood, God's absolute creatorhood, or if I can put it in a negative sense, God's uncausedness. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right. Beginning with that text, all things are, and, and maybe go to like Romans eleven thirty six. all things are from him and through him and to him. And what I would argue is any statement about God, whether it's a statement about his nature or his operations, any statement in scripture that would suggest that God himself has any actuality of being from another, like passions would be actuality so, from another. So in other words, when this causes him to be acted upon when God or, rece- or receives some kind of... Let me go eggheaded and say, if God receives any determination of being or actuality, if the language of Scripture suggests that, then at that point you can be sure that you're talking about something, you're talking non-literally. So, for instance, in the case of body parts um, in particular, beings that have body parts um, depend upon both formal and material principles of being, in which case then that would place God in a dependency and caused sort of relationship. And passions are when you're acted upon from right. There the has outside. to be an agent. You're, you're the patient. There has to be an agent that's causing the passion um, that is external to the one who is being caused. Or, a, or if it's internal, like if I... If I cause passion in my left arm by wounding myself with my right arm, then there have to be parts. So things composed of parts depend upon parts not identical with themselves. Therefore, God can't have them because he's the absolute cause of all things. Things that are passable um, are beings that can receive determinations of actuality uh, either from one part to another or from an external agent to themselves. Um, Things that have body parts depend upon a material and a formal principle really distinct from each other and distinct from the thing that has them. So if, if you can take this kind of fundamental starting point of God's absolute uncausedness, any depiction of divine activity, like I'll just take a different, a different one besides passions or body parts. Let's talk about knowledge, for instance. If anything suggests that God is discovering or learning or acquiring knowledge from the creature, observation, language of knowledge via observation, then you can be sure that that's speaking non-literally because observational knowledge is a knowledge that is gained and acquired, actualized by the thing that is known. But God's knowledge isn't actualized by the creature, isn't made to be in him by the creature. So you're putting a lot of weight on the idea that God is the 
absolute creator of all things, that all things are from him and through him and to him. And therefore, he is not acted upon and nothing has a causal effect on God. Any statement in scripture that suggests that God himself is from or through that which is not identical with himself is to be read non-literally. That would be my that would be yeah. my biblical rule. Well, so if you're looking for an internal, a self-interpreting internal rule by which to use one set of biblical witness to judge other aspects of biblical witness, I would use absolute creatorhood as as that rule. And, and there is a a certain biblical logic to it because, of course, uh, as you mentioned, this is where the Bible begins, and right. this is the the point to which it always returns when speaking of God that He is our Maker, and we are simply creatures. And I'm not going to go down the rabbit trail, but I'm going to at least uh, flag it and say, um, and that that way of interpreting and understanding God also syncs up nicely with the witness of God through nature. That is to say, the witness of natural theology and the, and the biblical witness of absolute creatorhood, I think, concur in their judgment that statements suggesting dependency or causedness must be read non-literally. All right. So that may or may not be satisfying to our <laughs> listeners. You may just have raised another set of questions I, I that we submit, can deal with later. But what I would argue is if you come back on that, then are you going to argue that absolute creatorhood is itself not literal? Right. God, absolute sourcehood is itself not literally true. Um, and that would be the difficulty if you want to sort of turn it around and say, you know, I, I don't accept that premise. Can we put one on you? Um, so that was one on I me. I think that's only fair. All right. So now, now one to you. That's following up on, on probably multiple conversations we've had. Um, recently, uh, with, within the past few months, you and I had a conversation about church discipline yes, and excommunication in particular. Perhaps both of us came away from that conversation feeling like we'd only scratched the surface and that there were certain things left underdeveloped. So we've heard back from some listeners who wanted to know a little bit more of what we would say with regard to the rule for non-association. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about 1 Corinthians 5 here, where Paul says in verse 9, I wrote my letter not to associate with immoral people. And then he says immediately, I don't mean with immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, but then you'd have to go out, but actually not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think in our conversation, we, we focus particularly on um, the – excommunication from the Lord's Supper. Yes. But um, maybe we could talk, maybe you could say a little bit more about this non-association because it does seem to be, in Paul's language, more uh, extensive than simply they can't take the Lord's Supper. There seems to be a, a thicker association that we're supposed to be shunning. What is the, and, and how is that different from what Paul is allowing, this allowable association with worldly immoral people mm-hmm. What is the difference between that and the non-association with the so-called brother immoral person? Yeah, the the question in many cases stemmed from the fact that I said several times in our discussion, and, and, and we both agreed on this, that the picture of church discipline in the New Testament is not a picture of a kind of shunning that you see in certain traditions. 
So we were trying to distinguish between what we were saying, what we think the New Testament is describing, and and something that is often seen in at least in the or understood in the popular imagination. And I think what we were both objecting to is this idea of you are dead to me. Correct. Um, I don't receive Christmas cards from you. I don't receive phone calls from you. Right. We have zero communication. Uh, treat you as if you're a non-entity. Right. But I think the, that's what we were objecting to. Uh, without question. But the pushback we received, and I think rightly so, because it was a gap, was then how would we explain the verses that you just read in 1 Corinthians 5? So let me take a stab at this and um, and say that I think the association that Paul's describing in 1 Corinthians 5 is the kind of association in which you are essentially affirming and agreeing with the person's uh, presentation of who they are. Because as you pointed out, as Paul points out, he is not simply saying separate yourself from all worldly and ungodly people. Now, we do see that in the scriptures. In Psalm 1, it, it talks uh, about our associations. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. And so, we do find that in Scripture, but Paul says that's not what he was talking about in this letter that he wrote, which we don't have access to. So what was he talking about? Well, it seems to hinge on the fact that these people are still claiming to be Christians, still claiming to have a vibrant faith in Christ, still still naming the name of Christ. And the question in that situation is a little bit different from the question of are you going to be influenced by them or are you going to in some way be affected by spending time with them? The question then is, are you affirming their own designation of themselves? And so now the limits of that command to not associate are, are ones that are really hard for us to put our finger on today. There are things that in Paul's day would have um, indicated broad agreement with someone like sitting down and having a meal with them that might not necessarily carry the same freight today. But however that plays itself out culturally, I think what he's driving at is the fact that we're not to uh, in any way attach our name sort of e even in, in, in social ways to, to their own designation of themselves. In other words, we don't, we want it to be clear that while we're not going to, doesn't mean we're going to pass by them and not wave at them in the street or avoid them, or not take their phone calls, we want to make it clear that what they're saying about themselves with respect to Christ isn't, in fact, what Christ himself says. So we're always going to be on the side of Christ in terms of this association. And he's very clear about these things that Paul lists, and so we ourselves need to be clear. So again, it's tricky because some of the ways that plays out, some of the, the details of how that works itself out in individual situations. And by the way, a lot of the feedback that I received at least had to do with individual situations. Well, I have this relationship or I right. have this family member. And those are those are very tricky. But I think in broad brushstrokes, that's what Paul's talking about when he says don't associate with such a one. In such a way that would um, confirm or ratify even their understanding of themselves, false as it is that they are a brother. He calls them so-called uh, whereas sitting at a meal with an unbeliever uh, doesn't seem doesn't seem to fortify a false narrative that the unbeliever 
has the unbeliever isn't claiming to be a Christian. In that, no, in that, the no, immoral they, person of the world. I mean, is not right. claiming to be a Christian. Right, they're saying that they don't identify with Christ, and in a sense, you're agreeing with that. And, and the 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 difficulty with the so-called brother is he's saying, no, no, this is fine. I do still identify with Christ, and and this is all permissible within that identification. So that we don't want to become enablers of a false narrative of being a believer um, and thereby sort of maybe even unwittingly um, conspiring with him in this delusion that he has about himself. That, that's right. So as strange as it might seem, if someone repudiates Christ entirely, that makes it a little simpler in one sense to navigate the specific situation that Paul's describing is one where someone's saying, I am a Christian and still I'm engaged in all these things. Good, thanks. I think that gets us broader than simply can't come to the Lord's Supper. There is a broader context there is. Of, of how excommunication plays out. There is, there is. Good. Well, thanks. thank you. Thanks for uh, taking time to answer this question that our listeners have had, hopefully don't have any longer. And thank you for listening to Theology on the Go. We're always glad to hear from our listeners. And so send us emails and feedback, uh, things that you'd like us to discuss. And if we can, we'll try to get to them. Uh, we'd also encourage you to tell others about this podcast if you think they'd be helped by it. And if you're able to donate, you can do that at AllianceNet.org or PlaceForTruth.org, where these podcasts are housed on the web. And thanks, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.